Welcome to The American Ingredient, a podcast that examines race in American society from an academic perspective. Focusing on the work from social scientists and legal scholars, The American Ingredient demonstrates that race is not the only ingredient in making America, but in order to make America, you need two heaping spoonfuls. This episode is the second part of our interview with Professor Yasmin Irizarry. Professor Irizarry, who is a professor at the University of Texas, focuses on the complexity of race, and she highlights the social construction of race and that race has different meanings in different contexts. Using the context of Latin America and specifically the experiences of Latin American immigrants into the U.S., she demonstrates how race can take on different meanings in different spaces, but also highlights how Latin American immigrants come to develop a new understanding of race. In this episode, Professor Irizarry highlights the problems we've had in terms of our quantitative analysis in making assumptions about a lack of bias. She starts this interview with her discussing teacher evaluations of students, and she highlights that the argument that there is a lack of bias because of a variety of studies which have found a lack of bias is problematic because these arguments about a lack of biases, bias are based on averages, and that if you look a little bit closer, you can see that there is bias, specifically those at the bottom and at the top rungs, and that this bias may be more damaging than we realized. What I want to go back to now is your discussion um, as a methodologist, and you talked about that many of the times we had these coefficients, they're, they're averages. And you pointed out that this average could mean that, okay, this is an experience across the entire group. It could be uh, bimodal since you have one group at one end and another group at the other end, or you could have uh, one group that is driving it. And so where, where are you seeing some, so can you, I guess, tell us a little more of some of the research where you've been able to highlight that these coefficients are, um, aren't telling, are telling a overly simplified story. I'm seeing it everywhere I look. Okay. Pretty much almost every study I do, I find evidence that these coefficients are um, oversimplistic. And that's because the real world is never that simple, right? We don't all have these experiences. We come from different regions. Um, we have different complexions. We have different ancestries. We have different levels of wealth, different genders, right? Um, And sexual identities. And all of that intersects with race to shape all kinds of experiences. And so all the time I'm finding ways that these uh, average effects, right, are really just um, representative of some kind of other thing going on that we're not really sure about, that it's not a universal experience that we can understand through a coefficient. Um, so to give you an example, I have a, a, an article in social science research, and this was uh, some work that came out of my dissertation research. I, my dissertation looked at uh, uh, two main ideas. One was this idea of multidimensional measures of race, the idea of inter- thinking about the way people are racialized, uh, through race, ethnicity, immigration status, and how all those come together to create a particular like subgroup experience. Um, so thinking about how would we measure that? What would that look like? But the other part of my work, since I'm in, um, a sociology of education scholar, was looking at the experiences of really young children. So I was interested in what happens uh, right when children are entering school, what happens in first grade, 
And one of my chapters explored teachers' perceptions of students, their behaviors, their uh, perceptions of their academic ability. Mm-hmm. And I, this was, uh, even though I had other chapters, this ended up being the one that I really um, uh, found to be so important and uh, ended up exploring in a lot of detail. Mm-hmm. And one of the papers that came out of that chapter uh, looked at teachers' uh, uh, perceptions of a student reading ability um, in first grade, and and really just looking at that because what students, what teachers think about students will shape things like gifted placement, access to opportunities and resources, right? Yeah. So thinking of that as a starting point for it. And my main finding of this paper was when you looked at the average effect, it looked like there were no racial gaps in teachers' perceptions of reading ability. Zero. There were no significant coefficients. In this case, there was no average effect. Mm -hmm. But there was a reason for that. And the reason was that teachers and how race works and how teachers racialize students varied based on the student's academic performance. Because part of the stereotypes that drive maybe differential attitudes are entrenched in this idea of who can and who can't, right? about students' abilities, supposed abilities, um, their intellects, right? And so what I found was when you look at students across the spectrum of performance, I won't say ability per se, because I won't say that this test could ever capture their true ability or potential. But when you look across the spectrum of performance, um, I found that at the um, bottom of the achievement distribution, teachers rated um, black students... Uh, non-white Latinx students and Asian students uh, more positively than white students who perform similarly on tests. So they rated the the white students more negatively. So the white students were punished for being, yes, at the bottom of the achievement distribution, right? Yes. Um, At the top of the achievement distribution, the black students, non-white Latinx students, Asian students were rated more poorly than the white students. So at the bottom of the distribution, whites are punished being at the white at the, at the at the bottom of the distribution. At the top of the distribution, non-whites are being punished for being at the top of the distribution. Absolutely. Now think about it. If I have on one side a negative four, and on the other side a positive four, what does that average out to? Zero. Zero. So it looks like there's no inequality. There's no inequities. There's no discrimination. When in fact, race is working differently within these different domains for these children. And it was masked by an average of zero, right? Something really important and especially important because uh, it both speaks to the kind of uh, maybe lower expectations teachers have mm-hmm. of students, which is why they may, it may have been a higher expectation of white students or, or vice versa, you know, a, a lower expectation of students of color. Mm-hmm. At the lower end of the achievement distribution, that may lead to students not providing as much rigor when, let's say, they're in urban communities, low-income communities are working with students who are, uh, that enter school less prepared, that they don't, they, they, they have lower expectations maybe. Okay. Or see, don't see the same kind of potential, so don't provide the same kind of rigor mm-hmm. or opportunities for those students. And at the top of the achievement distribution, it speaks to the barriers for students of color in trying to be seen for their potential, right? That they are, in fact, meeting all this, given all the barriers to success. Mm-hmm. They're meeting those goals, and yet they're not being seen that way by teachers. And that's going to shape what kind of opportunities the teacher is going to provide for those students. It seems to be that when the white students are at the bottom, it's like, what is wrong with you 
for being here. So that's why they seem to be punished more like what's wrong with you. With non-white students being at the top, it's almost seen as like, well, do you really deserve this? Or is it justified? Is it is it something like, nah, you really don't deserve this. Uh, and so that's why I'm not going to rate you as high as your white counterparts. Whereas the white counterparts at the bottom, like, what's wrong with you? So I'm going to rate you worse than your, I guess, non-white counterparts at the bottom. Um, yeah, and, I, you know, the thing about quantitative work is I can't tell you exactly yeah. the, the, you know, the thought process yeah, the teacher sure. was having. But I can tell you the gaps are there okay. and that they're significant and that they're large enough that they can have a, a pretty large impact. And this is just one moment, mm-hmm. one experience in one moment. And really, race, race and racism are cumulative, right? Yes. So all kinds of moments accumulating to an experience. Mm-hmm. But in this one moment, in this one measure that I was looking at, a student's rating the kind of average ability of a student. Um, yes, the, the teachers were, whether they were being, um, uh, whether they were penalizing the white students at the bottom or maybe had lower expectations for the students of color, I couldn't tell you which one it was, or maybe it's both. Mm-hmm. At the top of the distribution, whether they saw greater potential in the white students or whether they were more skeptical of the performance okay. of students of color. I couldn't tell you, and it could be both too. Um, but in the end, the result of that was uh, an inequity that was masked by an average and that uh, without knowing couldn't be dealt with in a way that could possibly lead to both uh, um, uh, maybe uh, greater expectations for students who come in uh, less prepared because they still have great potential. Where they come in is not where they could end up being, depending on yes. what a teacher thinks and what they offer. But they have to believe that. Um, and at the, you know, towards the top of the distribution, um, really um, questioning one's biases and thinking about how we think about someone's potential in in a different way, right? In terms of offering opportunities, stopping and going. Am I th- am I thinking this because of their actual performance, or is there something? Uh, inside of me that is shaping this perception without me even realizing it. And there's tons of uh, social psychological research that um, that provides evidence of the way that race shapes, the way we receive behavior, um, performance, and different kinds of actions, right? So it, it taints all those kinds of um, interactions and the way we read people for everyone, for, yeah. for, for, for people of every race, not just for individuals who are white. Do you see your work as making the world more complicated? Because, again, we, wanted, we want, even amongst academics where we think of ourselves as understanding the complexity of the world, we do want things a little bit simplified. If you look at the articles, they're very simple. Like, okay, just give me a, give me a simple story. So do you see your work as making the world more complicated or as painting a better picture? Really painting a better picture because... We we say we want things simple, but we're a country with so many different people. And within a particular community, it may be simple, but it's simple for a subgroup within that community, right? Um, you can have a community that has particular subgroups there. For that community, that's all they know. For them, that's simple. But simple in an article may not translate to simple within their community, right? Because what is simple in their community may be very nuanced within our research. And so I don't see myself so much as, let's say, complicating um, as as I see it fleshing out. Because our articles, they'll never capture all the nuance, but they can be more specific. They can be more targeted. They can be more accurate mm-hmm. um, at trying to understand individuals' experiences. And it's through that uh, greater accuracy and that effort towards that that we can um, have better understandings of how these processes work within society, better understandings of how to target 
um, particular policies, interventions, and efforts. Um, because if we believe that there's just this black effect, what are we going to do? Every part of the country where there's a black person do the same policy because we assume that there's this black effect. Or if we don't find something for a similar reason than what I found, are we just going to assume then that there's not discrimination? Right. And so this, it's not it's not so much about this idea that it's complicated, because really, honestly, I don't think of my work as complicated. Yeah. Um, I, I don't I don't think of it that way. I just think of it as um, more detailed. OK. Right? So, you, so you, anyways, you're filling in many of the blank spaces, uh, I guess, on the canvas. One of the things also, you, you mentioned policy issues, and I'm thinking about the various ways, and when we think about policy, we think about target populations and understand that there are complexities of populations, that what might work in Appalachia is not going to work in San Diego, and what might work in Seattle is not going to work in El Paso. And we've seen this also with um, social movements. So, for instance, King realized that once he moved outside of the South, many of the things that he was talking about just weren't going to work, and so he had to... He had to update. So where are the policy issues where you believe this failure to understand nuance has been most damaging? Well, I don't think so much that there's one policy arena. In fact, I think it's probably most policy arenas. Um, What I think that it has done is it kind of reifies this idea that, uh, non-white groupings are monoliths, right? When we have simplistic measures, Mm -hmm. simplistic effects, we over and over and over again reify this idea that if you are not white, that you're simple, right? That you're simplistic, that you're monolith, Mm -hmm. and that we can understand the black experience, the Latinx experience. I never hear people say the white experience. I never hear that. I never... Uh, hear people talk about that on TV. Whites are diverse. So are we. Mm-hmm. But in the research, we're not painted as such. In the narratives that people create uh, around the promotion of policy, around discussions of issues of inequality in the news, the media, we're painted with very broad strokes. And this impacts all of our experiences and how we're seen in every arena. Right. So then in in essence, it impacts every policy. So, I mean, I look at specific things and sometimes those things are are, can be tied to specific policies or school policy, a district policy, a national policy. But sometimes they're just a challenge Mm -hmm. that notion to begin with. There may not be a policy to fix what it is that I'm looking at. It's not something that is easily fixable because it's entrenched. They're ideas that are entrenched. Mm-hmm. And the starting point for um, dealing with that is challenging those ideas, okay. showing the diversity mm-hmm. and showing it not just through stories, because I think those stories are so important, but also showing it through numbers, because people just people tend to believe that numbers are truths. They're mm-hmm. not. It's one of the things. One of the first things I tell my students is numbers are tools, not truths. Mm-hmm. I tell them this over and over again. But we have been taught to believe that numbers are truths. And so we need see numbers and see them as truths. And then we hear stories and goes, if that story reaffirms what we believe, we take it. If the story doesn't, then we say, oh, it's just an anecdote, regardless of what it is we believe. We tend to do this, right, as humans. Um, but people tend to see numbers and go, ah, those numbers are truths, and believe them without, without any question. Mm-hmm. And so maybe I'm trying to use numbers to create a different narrative 
one that challenges the kind of ideas that numbers have for a long time promoted. This idea that we that we can understand uh, non-white groups and, and the, the experiences of individuals within these groups uh, simplistically. Given the amount of complexity that the that sociology, political science, and much, many of the social sciences are willing to talk about with the white experience and the simplification of the non non-white experience, what are some of the pushback you've received in your work? Oh boy. Um, Okay, so, and it's funny because I'm actually going to sit on a panel um, at a pre-conference on race and racism in the sociology of education uh, right before the American Sociological Association meeting in Philadelphia in August. And this is one of my topics that I'm going to speak about. And um, uh, the pushback, oh, boy, I could talk about this for for a while, but really (laughs) uh, the pushback is that I would say, the starting point for the pushback is that many scholars believe that somehow they're exempt from the very forces they study. Oh, sociologists are notorious for this. They study things like race and racism, but believe that it couldn't exist within their own departments, associations, fields, right? Mm-hmm. And um, when we're creating academic work, right, especially uh, quantitative work where you're going through that kind of constant peer review at different journals, it's our, our peers that are reviewing our work. And so... I have individuals reviewing my work who believe they know about race, not because they're scholars of it, but because they know about race the way everybody else does, right? And that will shape Mm -hmm. the kinds of arguments they make about the work, what they value, what they say, how they frame it. And so I get a lot of pushback, but that pushback is, is often not situated in my methodology. Okay. As much as it is an ideology, sadly. Um, right. And so I do get that. And I get I get some of that, the pushback that comes specifically from my own colleagues mm-hmm. at times. Uh, doing the very same things I study in the, in the real world because they're real people. They live real lives. In the real world, they send their children to schools. Mm-hmm. Many of them segregated. Yes. Um, in the real world, they pick their houses based on the same kinds of criteria other people do. Right. In the real world, they befriend individuals. And while their friendship networks may be somewhat more diverse, they often look not too dissimilar to other individuals like them. Mm-hmm. Right. So in the in the in the real world, they live real lives. Right. They're real people. And that means that real forces impact their view. And there's no way to be entirely objective. We bring that back with us mm-hmm. into our work. I bring it back into my work. It's what shapes how I see the work that I'm doing mm-hmm. is my own experiences. And I'll admit that readily. Um, but it also shapes how people respond. And I won't say, so I won't say that the pushback, I, that I get all pushback or that it's all negative. In fact, there are many people that are supportive of what I'm doing mm-hmm. um, and see it as the, the kind of next step, right? That, that we are not done. We have a lot more work we can do. Yes. There's a lot more research to be done. We're not done studying these topics. We just have to think about new ways of studying them and understanding them. There's so much to be known still, right? And so there's space for the work that I'm doing and for the work of others that are trying to also, you know, uh, forge into these new areas. Um, but there's also um, a pushback to that. Okay. And I noticed that one of the things, uh, at least as a political scientist, what I've faced, and people have talked about this. So for instance, uh, Melissa Harris uh, Perry has talked about the fact that in political science, that work which treats blacks as objects, so 
uh, within the race work, the stuff that's published is mainly about white attitudes towards non-whites mm-hmm. and the nuance of white racial attitudes. But work that treats non-whites as agents tells their story seems to be pushed away, uh, seems to be ostracized or treated as specialized. And what I'm going to get from you is this seems to be the case as well, that when you talk about these groups as agents and talk about the complexity of these groups, people see this as, well, this is too, this is too specific. This is not general enough. Whereas you talk about whites, it is general. And I, it seems to be, that seems to be, refl- that to me seems to be reflected in uh, we're talking about some of the pushback, but also some of the previous work that's been done is that these non-white groups, I guess, really aren't about America. And if we see ourselves as especially uh, scholars of social sciences within within the American context, that these groups don't really need to be studied, um, that the complexities within these groups really don't matter. Is Are you, are you seeing that as well in, in sociology or do you believe... Do you believe we are getting better at acknowledging these groups as agents and uh, and acknowledging the complexity of their lives? We. So on average, I'd say we're getting better. But again, yeah. averages don't always represent uh, <laughs> uh, everyone's experience, mm-hmm. right? So I would say that maybe um, some people have gotten a lot better mm-hmm. and others not so much at all. That we still see uh, uh, the kind of pushback we've seen for a long time from some, some with power. Um, the power to reject papers, to uh, challenge promotions, to um, to really uh, kind of block people's trajectories yeah. and their opportunities to kind of produce this work and to um, see this kind of work to fruition, right, and bring it out to the world. Um, but there are also opportunities. People are hungry for it. I remember presenting some of the work I do. So I do work on uh, uh, attitudes, black attitudes, towards discrimination. And in fact, my first uh, um, solo authored article was an entirely black sample looking at attitudes about race and racism and whites. And my main argument is that we've spent a lot of time trying to understand, you know, ideas of interracial contact and attitudes about whites, but those whites aren't the only ones having contact within this space. And so what happens for blacks within these spaces? Can we say it's as good as it is for whites, right? it's not. But um, but a, a, my, my early work was in thinking about that, exactly that, right? What are other people thinking about? What are our stories yes. and other stories and trying to find ways to bring those out? Is there pushback to that? Um, yes, there is pushback to that. But uh, it's not a um, it's not a barrier. It's more like a hurdle. Okay. Right. It's not impossible. But boy, do some people make it really hard. Okay. So it is. It's it's harder to get this work out. Mm-hmm. It's harder to get this work published. Um, you will have people that will steer you towards. They'll say you should put this in the you know uh, race and ethnicity journals, right? They'll they'll try to um, shift the work into particular venues as though that work is not relevant to everyone. Like it shouldn't be in the mainstream or yes. the um, generalist journals. Um, within those journals, you'll have many many more reviews. They will be more negative. They will be longer. Um, just sent in a paper with some colleagues and our first set of reviews was five reviewers and 19 single space pages oh, wow. for a 6,000 word article. There were more words 
probably almost double the words mm -hmm. in the reviews to the article. Second review, three reviewers and 15 single space pages. Okay. It took many reviews, but our premise never changed. The paper didn't change. Most of that was proving without a shadow of a doubt in the minds of people who don't believe race matters or race is important in this kind of way that it does. Yes. And that's what we spent most of our time doing. Um, so you, so you, you were engaged in an ideological fight, not not a methodological fight. It was people were entrenched in this idea that race doesn't matter. And you had to basically climb that hill. There was some methodology you know. in there, right? Yeah. No paper is perfect going yes. in. So I won't say that the paper was perfect going yes. in, right? There were some changes to the models. There were um, some things that we added, some citations. The, the, you know, we, we did improve the paper. I won't say yes. that it wasn't improved through that process. But uh, we had to find those points within, yes, um, some also ideology where people actually just outright said, I don't know if I buy your argument. I don't know if I buy this as a thing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's not, for me, it's it's not uncommon. It happens in a lot of the things that I send, especially when I send them into generalist journals that I'm used to people actually just outright saying that they don't buy the race argument. They don't buy that race is an issue. They don't buy that this is really important or that, or, or sometimes downplaying it. That when I find these differences, it's just a you know an incremental amount yes. of knowledge, right? Um, so that it is there, that kind of that that pushback is there. That kind of work to push the this work to the periphery into particular journals is there. It just means I've got to fight a little harder. I don't mind. Okay. I'm 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 one that's always for a fight. I'm from Newark. Professor Irizarry's work points to the need for social scientists to be more aware of the complexity of race. She has highlighted that. Because race is a social construction, the way in which we develop our racial identities or come to understand what race means differs from context to context. Furthermore, she has highlighted that many of the race problems that we thought were solved are not solved at all. That if we scratch the surface and we look a little bit more, we see greater disparities than expected. Professor Irizarry is trying to push the social sciences to be more aware of the various intricacies of the racial experience. She sees her work not as painting a more complex picture, but a more detailed picture. In many ways, she is pulling things that were been in the shadows out into the light for us to better understand the race problem and how to work to solve the race problem. As earlier interviews have suggested and have, have discussed, the tools that we use are important. And we know that we cannot use the same tool for every group and that many of the problems that we think may have gone away are hidden meaning that we must update the tools that we use. So as we go forward, I hope that you, as well as others, will take the time to think a little bit more deeply about the complexity of race and the racial experience and how we can change the way in which we study it. Also, what are the tools and activities that we can engage in to help solve this problem? Thank you for listening to The American Ingredient. I'm Eric McDaniel, a professor in the Department of Government at the University of Texas. I would like to thank Michael Heidenreich and Jacob Weiss for their assistance, along with the Department of Government at the University of Texas and the University of Texas's LEITS Development Studio.